Hello and welcome to Health Research Explained, an evidence-based podcast hosted by me, Sylvia Brooks. Through this podcast, we hope to make health research more understandable to all of us, arming us with information we can all be empowered with to make informed decisions about our own health. Today, I'm joined by Claire Daffin. Claire is Quality Assurance Manager at Warwick Clinical Trials Unit, um, part of Warwick Medical School. Um, Claire is here today to talk to us about research governance. Claire, welcome. Hi, Sylvia. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're more than welcome. Um, really happy to have you here. If you wouldn't mind explaining just a little bit about what you do in your role and um, lead on to then what research governance is really about, that would be really fantastic. Okay. Uh, well, I work uh, within the Warwick uh, University Clinical Trials Unit as part of the medical school. It's an academic clinical trials unit. So we work with clinical academics, um, a lot of whom are based at our local uh, NHS trust up at University Hospitals Coventry in Warwickshire. Uh, my role is as, uh, in the quality assurance team, um, which is a core role within the unit. We're responsible for developing and maintaining all the standard operating procedures uh, that our staff are obliged to adhere to. So the area that we work in is highly regulated uh, and we have to demonstrate that we are completing tasks and um, doing our work in standard ways uh, and that everybody's doing the same thing in the same way to demonstrate a level of quality. So we work to these standard operating procedure documents. So a lot of work there to um, keep them up to date uh, and make them relevant and the SOPs form a large part of the um, our staff's training um, and my team are, are also responsible for delivering training um, to other staff within the unit. Um, the core training is, is something called good clinical practice and anybody that works in research has to um, be trained in, in, in the principles of good, good clinical practice which basically boil down to the fact that we need to be working ethically, um, we need to ensure that the, our data is of the highest quality, and most importantly, that we're putting our patient's safety and well-being at the very top of our priorities. Um, That's so, fantastic. Yeah. I, I will probably ask you a little bit more about um, the good clinical practice training as we go on. That was something I definitely wanted to touch on. Um, for me, I think you're the ideal person to give us the information that we need. Um, you know, obviously, the idea for this podcast came out from COVID-19, and we've heard so many concerns from the general public about how quickly um, COVID-19 vaccine research in particular um, has taken place, how, how fast it's been turned around. Um, and how it's given us results in super speed time. Um, but And we've heard a lot about, oh, it's fine. The process has been exactly the same as it would be for any other research study. But I would like a bit more information for our listeners, perhaps, about um, what that process is. So, for example, you, you know, somebody has an idea for a research study. From that point, 
you know, what, what are the steps that are involved in setting up the research today? Yeah, you're entirely right. The, the clinical academics that we work with tend to come um, have, a, have a great idea, usually something based on, on their current work um, and, and thinking about how they can improve things and how they can make things better. There are various funding streams that come uh, that are available to us, mainly um, through the National Institute for Health Research, uh, and that's the NHS's uh, research arm. And so we can apply to uh, the NIHR and to other charities and, and some other funding bodies um, to basically receive a grant to set up a team to specifically try to answer um, a particular question. So once we've been awarded a grant, if we're, if we're successful in that, we need to set up a team. Um, clinical trial work is, 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 is very much teamwork. Um, a trial can't be set up and managed by one person alone. Mm -hmm. So we would generally, well, each project needs to have a chief investigator, and that's generally the person um, that has, you know, instigated the, the whole process and, and received the grant. And then we will have to have um, an administrative team set up as well, but also, you know, back up by other clinicians, statisticians, health economists, etc., to develop a protocol. Once we've got a protocol uh, and supporting documents, we need to submit those to an ethics committee. So the NHS has, um, has numerous ethics committees around the country uh, to whom we have to apply uh, and get approval for our work. And their remit, obviously, um, is to ensure that, you know, what we're, the work we're proposing it is ethical and um, that our, we, we, we will be looking after our participants, our patients, to, to um, as best we can. So once we've got ethical approval, we can begin a study. The difference with the, um, the current vaccine studies that have been going on is the fact that the authorities were all alerted to what they were called, being called priority public health studies and um, the ethics committees and the government's competent authority, um, who are called the Medicines for Human Use Regulatory Authority, okay. um, they were all on alert and ready to receive applications from various people. And so in normal circumstances, it can take up to a month or even more to get a favourable opinion from an ethics committee. Uh, however, for the COVID vaccine studies and some of the research that we've set up uh, looking into different aspects of COVID treatment, we've managed to get our approvals through really, really very quickly um, within, within a couple of days or even shorter turnaround times in some circumstances. So um, that's, that's fantastic. Would, would the, um, the Obviously, the ethics committee would th would that be set up in exactly the same way as would you know would it be the same people that would be on the committee that would normally be you know on the committee in normal times as such you know is that is it done yeah. exactly the same way? Um, I believe for the vaccine studies there were some speciality ethics committees set up, 
Um, across the country, there's a range of different ethics committees with different ex um, expertise areas. Okay. Um, some for um, looking into um, research involving children, perhaps, or uh, complex drug studies where more, um, you know, clinical input is needed. So ethics committees are kind of tailored to the sort of research. So there's the necessary expertise in them within the, within the committee, uh, you know, to, uh, to interpret the protocol uh, and to provide, uh, you know, a, an ethical opinion based on, on the proposal. But ethics committees also have um, lay members, so members of the public um, who have no, um, what well, maybe, or have very limited um, clinical knowledge. Um, and so it's important that we write all of our protocols so that members of the public can also understand, you know, what we're aiming to do. So being transparent um, and being open and having our protocols written in a very clear way is is very important. Mm, that, that's brilliant. And and would you have um, patients involved when you know in the early stages when you're deciding on what you're going to um, be studying or how how your protocol is going to be set up? Would you have patients involved in that? Yes, absolutely. Um, we call it PPI or patient and public involvement, and it's become very very, very important um, over recent years. And in fact, now um, there is a question on the ethics application form uh, where you have to stipulate what patient and public involvement you've had uh, in the development of your protocol. And we find it's really useful uh, to get input from patients who, you know, perhaps had experience of the particular disease area that we're looking into. Um, and they can provide us some really valuable advice. They can help to review the uh, information sheets that will be passed to potential participants um, and just make sure that they're understandable and acceptable uh, to, to the population that we're, we're hoping to recruit from. So yeah, PPI, uh, patient and public involvement is extremely uh, useful and extremely valuable. That's fantastic. And is that something that anybody can get involved in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can get involved via um, various bodies like uh, Involve, um, but also a lot of disease areas have patient groups um, that, that anybody can join, anybody with an interest can join in. Um, and then, yeah, we, will, we would generally have um, somebody within the trust that can point us in the right direction to um, PPI reps who may be able to, who may be interested in helping us out. That's fantastic. So, so once that um, approval is is gained, what what are the steps? What happens from there on? Right. So then we need to um, decide, decide um, how many um, recruitment centres we need, and we need to start training the staff at the the sites where we're hoping um, where 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 we will recruit our participants from. Um, and each NHS Trust has um, their own level of governance based in their research and development office. So as well as getting approval from an overarching ethics committee, we have to get confirmation from the individual hospital trust that they have uh, the capacity 
to take this research project on. So we need to get approval from the R&D team as well. Okay. Uh, once that's in place and once we've got insurance in place, um, all clinical trials also need what's known as a sponsor. Um, and a sponsor is an individual, but more usually an institution who takes overall responsibility for the conduct of the clinical trial. Um, the University of Warwick acts as sponsor for a lot of our projects, but we also have a lot of co-sponsorship um, projects along with our local NHS Trust, the University Hospitals Coventry and Warwickshire. So we need sponsorship and to have insurance in place. Um, and then, as I say, train all of our site staff and then we can actually begin recruiting uh, into a study. Okay. And does the majority of uh, clinical research or health research um, take, does it happen in hospitals or does it happen in other, in other organisations? Um, yes, uh, in a multitude of locations, um, in hospital, uh, recruiting from GP practices as well. So we call that primary care-based research. Hospitals are secondary care-based research. We may be um, doing research that's based in other um, just community settings. Um, so yeah, it, it, it just depends on the sort of project but it can be in, in all sorts of different locations. Okay, so there'd be plenty of opportunity for people to get involved in, in one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. Um, most of our research projects will have some sort of uh, adverts or posters that we will put up in GP practices or within hospitals, or we advertise these days via Twitter uh, and various of the social media uh, outlets. So yeah, people can people can get involved um, if if they see these posters or, or see the adverts or, or information on Twitter or wherever as well. So yeah, we do encourage people to to get in touch and participate. Okay, so. Uh, uh sorry to take you back a little bit so as well as the ethics approvals are there any other type of approvals are there any other um organizations or institutions for whom you would who you'd need to let know you're um running this research and who would need oversight of what you're doing yeah absolutely so um i mentioned that we needed a sponsor so the sponsor would also need to approve any application before it goes any further. Um, but with regard to regulatory um, officials, I mentioned the medicines, um, medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency or the MHRA. Mm -hmm. The MHRA are the government's um, appointed competent authority. So when legislation came into force that governs um, any clinical research that involves drugs, um, this was all set up um, after an EU directive um, was issued. And then each of the EU member states had to transpose that um, directive into their own, in, uh, their own national law. In the UK, that's called the Medicines for Human Use, brackets, Clinical Trials Act, uh, and that came into force in 2004, and that's overseen by the MHRA. 
So if you're doing research that involves drugs, and obviously not all research involves drugs, uh, we, we do research in lots of different areas, um, but if your research does involve drugs, then as well as applying to an ethics committee, you must also apply to the MHRA uh, for their scrutiny and their approval. The MHRA um, have the power to halt a study. They can come and inspect our unit or, or any, uh, any location where clinical research is taking place to make sure that we're doing things properly. Um, so yeah, they have... Um, that they have the authority, as I say, just to, to halt any work that they find isn't being done correctly, if it, if it isn't being done correctly. Um, but they're also there to support us and provide us with advice as we need it. But without their explicit approval, um, we would be breaking the law if we started a research, a drug study, without their approvals in place. Okay. Um, and what about if it wasn't a drug study? Who would be who would be overseeing things then? Um, yeah, well, the ethics committee themselves, um, we're, we're obliged to send them uh, reports periodically on the progress of the study. The main uh, point of oversight comes from the sponsors institution. So one of the roles um, that myself and the team I work within uh, have is to audit and monitor uh, research and, and to keep our eye on what's what's going on uh, within the studies that, that we um, yeah that we're, that we're conducting. So part of the QA team's role at the start of a project is to um, undertake a risk assessment and from that risk assessment we work out what, what are our main areas of potential risk within a study bearing in mind patient safety and data quality are the important things that we need to focus on. And from that risk assessment, we actually put a monitoring plan into place. So um, we have a schedule of the checks that we would need to undertake throughout the lifetime of a study, whether that's on the data that's coming through uh, and checking the quality and completeness uh, of that data, or whether it's actually doing visits to our recruitment sites um, and supporting the teams there um, and just making sure that, that, you know, they're all using the right paperwork, that they've been trained and that they're following the protocol correctly. So, yeah. That's really interesting. And so you would physically go in to a hospital, for example, and, you know, check the work that's being done, that it's being done up to the required standard. Yes, absolutely. Um, so as I say, that's part of the remit of the quality assurance team. Um, but the authorities themselves have their own inspectors uh, as well who can come and, and, and oversee at a very top level. But yeah, part of the part of my team's role is to monitor and audit projects that are ongoing so that we can support our, the sites that are recruiting into trials on our behalf. Okay, and has that been any different during COVID-19? You know, is there still the same level of, you know, oversight? Are you still going into places to, to, to check or the, are the authorities going in to check that the work's being done to the same standard? No, obviously, um, during the pandemic, um, 
we have not been able to to do any site visits and uh, there's been no on-site inspections either by the by the authorities however that doesn't mean uh, oversight has halted we've had to um develop some new methods of um of monitoring and now as seems to be the way for a lot of things we can have meetings um on video links with research staff at sites uh, they can share documents with us uh, over these platforms uh, we can ask them questions they can ask us questions uh, and we can support them in that way we tend to produce what we call self-monitoring checklists um, and they are sent to the site for them to answer a few questions and if any of the answers are you know concerning in any way then obviously we need to go and support that support that team to put something right okay so, so, yeah, so you um, mentioned that the mhra have um the authority to halt or to go and inspect a, re a research study what what if if they um what what is the procedure if something goes wrong or if the the um protocol isn't being the rules of the of the the study basically the thing the steps you have to follow what what would happen in those instances then if something is go is going wrong yeah i mean obviously um we write a protocol and we expect that the protocol is adhered to at all times but uh, real life kicks in sometimes and you know sometimes it isn't always possible to stick to the protocol completely uh, and we would call that a deviation from the protocol and, and just record that um, if that happens. If there have been errors and problems then yes obviously we need to step in and take some corrective actions and try and put some preventative actions in place um, to um, you know, stop errors uh, occurring again. The MHRA um, will look to see what data is coming through on each particular study. And as well um, as scrutiny from, from ourselves and from the authorities, most large randomised trials have what's called a data monitoring committee. And they are an independent group of experts in the disease area, whatever that may be, under study, and they are the only people who receive uh, the unblinded data. And if from the analysis of that information, they find that there's a potential harm being caused to the participants, then they will potentially recommend that the studies halted. From a governance point of view, we would then need to alert all of our recruiting centres and ask them to halt activity um, and we would alert the authorities as well. So okay. basically as soon as we get any idea that there's a problem anywhere there is a potential that we halt uh, the research study. Okay so with the COVID-19 COVID vaccines for example had there been any of these issues along the way these um, studies, they they would have been they would have been stopped, and more investigations would have have taken place. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, these these very very large um, studies that took place with regard to the COVID vaccines. You know, I think the Pfizer study had over forty five thousand participants, so mm. the volume of data would have been huge. 
Um, but yeah, the remit of the data monitoring committee would have been to scrutinize that data as it was coming through in real time, uh, as far as, as they possibly could. Um, and any indication uh, of, of any yeah, untoward or adverse reactions, as we call them, would have been um, flagged back to the uh, investigators and also the, the study funders and sponsors. And if there were concerns, then yes, they would have been halted. So I do understand that some people think that the um, vaccine trials went were, were all went through too quickly, but they recruited huge number of people uh, in a very, very short time. Mm -hmm. um, and so the numbers weren't any different to um, how studies would be run in, in normal times, should we say. It's just that because these vaccine studies were given a priority uh, as an urgent public health requirement, uh, that everything was pushed through quickly. But yeah, the, the public should be re reassured that the Data Monitoring Committee will have been keeping a very close eye on the data. And as I say, if there was any indication at all that there was something potentially harming people, then yeah, the research would uh, necessarily have to have been stopped. Okay. And you mentioned earlier about the good clinical practice training. So um, obviously that's something that everybody who's, you, you know, so for example, with these vaccine studies, everybody doing the hands-on work um, for that study, they, <clears throat> excuse me, they would all need to be, um, have this good clinical practice training. Yeah, definitely. And one of the um, main principles of or one of the principles of GCP is that everybody that works in the research environment must be adequately trained and experienced in order to undertake their role. And that also has to be documented. So in our world, if uh, if things aren't written down, they didn't happen. So we need to be able to prove um, to the authorities should they ask. Uh, that we are suitably trained uh, and experienced. Um, but yeah, GCP, as I touched on earlier, very much focuses on ensuring that work, the work we do um, make sure that we look after our, our participants who are all volunteers. Nobody's being paid. Um, they've all kindly agreed to give up their time to help uh, to find an answer to these important research questions. Uh, so we must protect them to the best of our ability um, and also we need to make sure that the data that we're collecting is seen as valid and verifiable and credible so we have to have a lot of systems in place uh, to monitor that data and oversee as it comes in and just check that it's all clean uh, and valid and verifiable okay so obviously once <clears throat> the the all of this work has been done and obviously the the trained staff have collected all the data together um, or collected all the data then what what happens from there so obviously that those steps must have um, happened much more quickly during covid-19 as well um the, the next steps almost Yes, indeed. I mean, obviously, what happens then with all this uh, huge amount of data that's that's been accumulated is it's passed into the hands of statisticians who will then um, analyze the data um, to get to get an answer to the question. So, with with the vaccine, is this effective or not? Um, and so, they're monitoring people's reactions to having the vaccine, 
and then subsequent potential exposure to the virus and whether the vaccine has provided a, a level of protection. So yeah, once the data's in, the databases get locked, um, the statisticians do their extremely clever work, uh, work out the answer to the question, and then the next step is to um, publish that data as quickly as we can. Okay, and, and you, you mentioned that you have your own statisticians within the clinical trials unit there at Warwick. Yes, we do. We have a very experienced team of statisticians that work with us. Um, they, they work extremely hard with, as I say, huge, huge volumes of data to analyse. Um, we also have teams of what, what are known as health uh, economists. So in our line of work, outside of COVID, our normal, uh, our normal work is looking to potentially change routine practice and routine care. And so within the NHS, we also have to prove that any new treatment is not only clinically effective, but it's also cost effective. And so it's up to the health economist to, to work that out, um, whether a new treatment offers um, potential benefits uh, to the NHS financially as well. Oh, that's really interesting. <clears throat> so um, the data has been put together, um, findings have been de decided upon, decided on what the outcomes of the study are. What what would happen from there, from your from your perspective? If we're looking to get, say, a new vaccine approved, then that data would all be sent off to the regulators, the MHRA, for them to scrutinise as well. Um, and I'm aware also in, in um, with regard to the vaccine projects, the European Medicines Agency um, have taken obviously great interest in this as well. So they will have been scrutinising the data. Um, it's up to them to provide approval um, to allow, you know, to release the vaccine for use to the general public. So the authorities have the final say um, and they will scrutinise the data. And if they believe that there is a potential benefit and that this vaccine is, is going to be useful and not cause any harm, then they will provide a licence. And it's at that point then that the vaccine can start to be rolled out into the general public. Okay. So, and you mentioned there about the involvement of Europe. So, just as a bit of a side note, so has anything changed since um, Brexit with the way that we work with Europe and in clinical research? Um, not so far. Um, I mentioned the EU directive that was transposed to become the national law within the UK. That Medicines for Human Use Act is still in force. We obviously still want to continue to collaborate with our European partners. Um, and so whatever happens uh, in the future, we will still need to be aligned in some way. Um, the authorities in the UK um, had a big hand in developing this law. Um, and so I'm sure that the, the UK government will not be um, rescinding that law. Um, and that we will hopefully in the future just be able to continue working with our European partners uh, as we have done in the past. Okay, okay. Um, 
so it is um, I don't know whether there's anything else that you wanted to add in Claire um yeah. it might just be interesting to to state that um Covid obviously meant a, a great deal of change to uh, an awful lot of people and, and the way that they work and uh, obviously myself and my colleagues we've all been working at home um, since March last year so just over a year now but we've managed to successfully set up new projects including um, looking at different methods of ventilation or providing um, oxygen support for patients in intensive care or on high dependency units so but but that that was all made possible again by the authorities all being aware of these urgent public health requirements during the pandemic and providing us um, access to them very quickly and then being able to provide us with their favorable opinions and their approvals for us to start our research um, much more quickly uh, than we potentially had seen in, in the past. So that's, that's fantastic. The pandemic has, has changed uh, somewhat the way that we work. And have you had any results for any of your the COVID-19 studies that you've been working on? Has there been anything that's... Um... Not just yet, um, though we are expecting results very, very soon, actually, on, on, our, on our recovery support um, study where we were looking at these different methods of uh, providing oxygen to patients who are, you know, who, who are suffering with COVID. Okay, because yeah, I don't know whether you heard my one of the previous episodes and I was talking about um, how the a lot more is being published in the media, for example, about the results of, of studies and about how you know some sometimes we're getting to hear information bef before we normally would perhaps before um a final decision would would have been made by research journals for example um about whether this is a, a quality piece of research have you have you found that that things that are moving faster in that area yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the pandemic has, has just raised awareness of clinical research uh, as, a, as a whole and the general public are now more aware of, of what actually happens or, uh, you know, to, to get a new vaccine or a new drug um, approved and on the market. And so I guess it's only natural that people's curiosity and interest have been raised in this area and that, that people want to know more about you know how how this all happens so I, i'm not surprised there has been a lot in the media um it's sometimes odd seeing say potentially ill-informed um information getting put out there um which is quite worrying so mm. you know i think we, we we need to wait for the for the full data we need to be fully informed um, and have the whole picture before we, we jump to any conclusions. I think that's the danger sometimes with the, perhaps the media being involved, um, that they they might not quite understand the whole picture yeah. and might, might you know, um, draw the wrong conclusions. But it's good that, you know, the world of clinical research is, is becoming recognised or how important it is, um, is becoming recognised. So we're, we're happy about that. Yeah. Um, 
yeah and long may it continue yeah absolutely because you know the work that we do the work that I do the work that you do depends on on people being involved doesn't it and you know if if we are not giving people the information they require then it's a big ask to to ask them to be involved in research absolutely um you know and as I've said our main priority is to make sure that we're, we're keeping people safe who do volunteer to take part in, in, in any research project um, and that's got to be key and, and, and having public confidence that research has been set up correctly, has been approved correctly um, and that everything in, in the, you know, the COVID world and um, the development of the vaccines was all done in exactly the same way as, as any um, clinical trial set up in, in normal times um, it's just that because the authorities that were all aligned we were able to set up these studies very much more quickly um, than, than we did pre-covid um, but yeah the same rigor um, and the same oversight and protections are, are all there um, and, and we need to maintain that confidence within the public um, so that they will continue to, to help us and to volunteer into projects in the future. That's fantastic, Claire. Thank you so much. Um, I would be very keen to have you back on again in the future or one of your colleagues on in the future to talk about the findings of your of some of your research, perhaps your ventilation study. That would be really interesting. Yeah. Um, but thank you again for joining us today. Uh, we do really appreciate it. No problem whatsoever, Sylvia. It's nice speaking to you. When I was talking to Claire just now, you would have heard us talking about the principles of good clinical practice, GCP, and GCP training. But what is GCP in health research? GCP is a standard that is recognised across the world and all clinical research involving humans at all stages of design and implementation should be following it to make sure the research is ethically and scientifically sound. There are 13 guiding principles of GCP, which are based upon work of the World Medical Association Declaration of Helsinki in 1964 and have since been enshrined into EU law. All people who are involved in the design and delivery of health research in the UK are required to undergo GCP training and to work to the principles at all times. In the UK, for most people working in research, they will have received training through the National Institute for Health Research or another approved institution. The NIHR offer this training at no charge to the NHS, universities and other publicly funded organisations that conduct or support clinical research. I'm now just going to take you through a quick and easy overview of the 13 principles of GCP. Principle 1. Clinical trials or health research studies should be carried out in line with the ethical principles that have their origin in the De Declaration of Helsinki and that are in harmony with GCP and the applicable regulatory requirements that exist to ensure safe and ethical research. Principle two, before a trial is started, any possible risks and difficulties should be weighed up against the expected benefit for both the individuals taking part in the research and society as a whole. A trial should be started and continued 
only if the likely benefits justify the risks. Principle three, the rights, safety and well-being of people taking part in research are the most important consideration and should always be the most important consideration over interests of science and society. Principle four, the available non-clinical and clinical information on an investigational product, such as a drug or a medical device, should be adequate to support the proposed clinical trial. For example, this should have been rigorously tested prior to the use in a health research study. Principle five, clinical trials should be scientifically sound and described in a clear, detailed protocol. A protocol is a lengthy document which provides the plan for the research study. It should include what the aims and objectives of the study are, the exact steps of how the research will be conducted and how the data will be collected and analysed. Principle six, a trial should be conducted in compliance with the protocol that has received prior institutional review board or independent ethics committee approval. Principle seven, The medical care given to and medical decisions made on behalf of people taking part in research should always be the responsibility of a qualified physician or, where appropriate, a qualified dentist. This individual will usually take the title of principal investigator. Principle eight. Each individual involved in conducting a a research study should be qualified by education, training and experience to perform his or her respective tasks. Principle nine, freely given informed consent should be obtained from every person taking part in research prior to clinical trial participation. Though there are some exceptions to this rule, such as when people are incapacitated and the family or close friends of the individual may be asked to make a decision about their involvement based on what they know about the person and what their wishes would be. Principle 10, all clinical trial information should be recorded, handled and stored in a way that allows its accurate reporting, analysis and verification. As I discussed with my guest, the institution running the study or those overseeing the study, such as the MHRA, can ask to see this information at any time, so should be recorded and stored in a safe and orderly manner. Principle 11. The confidentiality of records that could identify subjects should be protected, respecting the privacy and confidentiality rules in accordance with the applicable regulatory requirements, such as the EU law, which is still followed in the UK, the General Data Protection Regulations, GDPR. Principle 12. Investigational products, such as drugs or medical devices, should be manufactured handled and stored in line with applicable good manufacturing practice, GMP. They should be used in accordance with the approved protocol. Principle 13. Systems with procedures that assure the quality of every aspect of the trial should be implemented. If you're thinking about taking part in a research study, the good clinical practice considerations which may affect you will be set out in a participant information sheet. This will explain in easy terms what being involved means for you. If you have further questions, you should discuss these with the person who has asked you to be involved in the study or contact the study team whose details should be on the information sheet. 
If you are a professional who would like to undertake good clinical practice training, you can find the link to the NIHR online training on the useful links and resources pages of our website, healthresearchexplained.wordpress.com, where you can also find transcripts of each podcast episode and reference lists containing details of the resources which have been accessed to inform each episode. If you'd like to ask us a question, you can email us at healthresearchexplained at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at HRE underscore podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.